Thanks for listening to the weekend message from Abundant Life Church. Most weeks on the podcast, you'll hear teaching from our lead pastor, Jeremy Jernigan. We have campuses in Oregon and Washington and are committed to giving ourselves to make the gospel good news for others. Find out more about Abundant Life Church at alcpnw.com. Well, I think we all want to be known, but we want to control what people know about us. I think this has always been true, but it's especially true when it comes to social media. I want you to know me, but I want you to know a version of me that I want you to know, right? And and this gets a little tricky when when you're thinking of all the factors that go into what people might think about you. And and I came across a story of, I think this happened like a week ago, where uh, there was a teenager named Maddie and she got into some trouble. Uh, According to her parents, she made bad decisions. I don't know what those are. Uh, But she was given two different options as to what she could choose for her punishment. And uh, based on the punishment she chose, I wanna show you how this played out. So this is an Instagram post uh, from her account. It says this, this is Maddie. Maddie got herself grounded. She had a choice of no phone for a month or no phone for two weeks, and we, her parents, have full control of her social media. (laughs) She chose two weeks. So be on the lookout for some amazing Instagram posts, Snapchats, and TikToks from her parents. (laughs) Now, in hindsight, I'm not sure that Maddie would have chosen the same thing, uh, but her parents really got into this. In particular, her dad decided, I'm really gonna take advantage of these two weeks. So he started posting things, probably different than what Maddie would post, but you got like one of these posts. Where he says, felt cute, might delete later, you know, which is just strange coming from a teenage girl account, you know, and, and that was just one of them. And then he posted this one, flashback Friday to my days of a mountain man, you know, kind of weird. My personal favorite of his post was this one, where he's, he's really getting into, getting into the role. And, uh, and after two weeks' time, it, you know, it, it, it passes, and, and finally, Maddie gets her account back. She posts a picture of her as a little child, and she says this, I'm back sweeter than ever and ready to make good choices. <laughs> What's hilarious is her account skyrocketed in the time that her parents had it, and now you have comments, bring the hot dad back, please. <laughs> Just gotta be really strange for a teenage girl. Uh, but she had like a normal teenager social media. Now she's got thousands and thousands and thousands of followers uh, because this was a really big deal and her parents got, got into it. Well, hey, I wanna welcome you to Abundant Life Church today. We're so glad that you're here. Uh, to those in the room with me, to those of you who are watching or listening online, uh, either through our YouTube channel, through a podcast, through Facebook, wherever you got here, so glad that you're a part of it. My name is Jeremy and I'm the lead pastor here. And uh, if you're new with us, we are so glad that you're here. We are a church about giving ourselves to make the gospel good news for others. And if you've got a journal, I wanna encourage you to get that out. Uh, if you're with us in person, uh, hopefully you were handed one of these. And, and if not, uh, if you're driving, you don't have to worry about taking notes. But uh, for the rest of us, I'd encourage you to get something out, get a, a note app on your phone, I encourage you to follow along and write down uh, things that we talk about. This is a tool for you in your own study with God throughout the week uh, to reference later and also to use in your life group. And so I encourage you to take advantage of that. If you go to week two in your journal, you see a spot for notes. And on the title, uh, here's what I encourage you to write down. Come and see is today's title. And so if you wanna keep reference of which message you're in, uh, if you wanna reference back to these notes, that is what uh, this is called. And if you get your Bibles out, we are in John chapter 
One, we're still in John one, it's so good. Uh, we're in this series of John, if you've been with us, and I think we're like two months in, and we're still in chapter one, and I'm loving it, and it's so great. And so, if you've got your Bible, physical Bible with you, that's awesome, get that out, open up to John chapter one. Uh, you can keep your spot there. We've been uh, in John for a while, we're gonna keep being in John for a while, and if you've got a Bible app on a phone or a device, I encourage you to get that out as well, and we'd love for you to read along with us. Well, I do have a little bit of sad news for you. Uh, today is our last week in chapter one. I know, feels sad coming close. But there's 21 chapters, so I feel okay about it. We're gonna be fine. Uh, but we are moving along. Next week will be chapter two. And so don't get too cozy in chapter one. We have to leave it today. But we're gonna look at two different stories that happen at the end of chapter one. There are two different days uh, in the life of Jesus. And if you notice what John does, Toward the end of chapter one, he literally sets up three days in a row, we're gonna look at two of them, where he says the next day, the next day, the next day. Now last week, if you're with us, uh, I titled the message, Do You See What I See? Playing off the, the Christmas song. And, and really, uh, uh, are we aware of what God is up to when it comes to becoming one of us? Well, here's what we're gonna see today is, is a number of reactions that people had when they saw him. So it's kind of like the reaction to last week of, we saw it, now what? And we're gonna see the now what from a number of people's point of view. Now we're gonna begin with a guy named John the Baptist. And if you've been with us in this series, I spent a whole week already on John the Baptist. And John's a kind of a precursor to Jesus. He gets everybody ready. And so what you have to realize is John is a teacher. He's got his own disciples. Crowds are following him. And one day as John is teaching, he sees Jesus and he's going to launch Jesus into his ministry, and we're gonna see how that takes place. So if you're with me in John chapter one, we're gonna begin reading in verse 35, and we'll look at the first of the two days that we're gonna look at today. It says, the next day, John was there again, this is John the Baptist, with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. I don't know how you imagine this, like, you know, just if they're in a room or just on a hillside, where are they, you know, and John's just like, hey, there's the Lamb of God. Look, oh, they turn around and we're gonna go follow him. And they just leave John to go follow. And we've talked about before, this phrase, the Lamb of God, is a favorite of the New Testament writers. They loved to describe Jesus as the Lamb of God. And so again, if you're paying attention, that's a key understanding of, of this image that makes sense, especially from a Jewish point of view, uh, of who Jesus is and what kind of a Messiah Jesus is going to be. Uh, verse 38, this gets interesting. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Now again, I love just to imagine what this would be like. So Jesus is walking. He sees John and his disciples, but he just kind of walks by, doesn't stop. John sends people over to him, and at some point Jesus realizes, you've got two people following you. So he stops, turns around, he's like, what do you want? Like, it's pretty intense, you know? I don't know if you saw people following you. Uh, you might turn around at some point and be like, whoa, what's the deal? What do you want? Now what's even better is their response. To, to this question, they could have said, um, hey, we're John's disciples, and he sent us over. Uh, they could have said, hey, we heard you're the Lamb of God, uh, and we're interested in that. They could have said a number of things. Instead, what do they say? Where are you staying? Now imagine this, you are followed by two people. You turn around, you ask them, hey, what do you want? And they say, where do you live? Anybody else feel uncomfortable with this? Like, this would be a very weird exchange. Hey, you're following me. 
I don't know why you're following me. Well, where do you live? Well, I'm not telling you where I live until you tell me why I'm following you. I mean, this could get really weird, really bizarre, but it doesn't because of what Jesus says next. And I would suggest this is not what you and I would say if we were in his shoes. But here's what Jesus says, verse 39. Come, he replied, and you will see. Where are you staying? Come, and you will see. So they went out, and they saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Now, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. So many interesting details in this story. John points out that the first thing Andrew does, he meets Jesus, and the first thing he does is like, I gotta go get my brother. I have got to get my brother. He rushes to his brother, uh, Simon. He brings him to Jesus, and that's like the first thing he does. And then notice, Jesus immediately changes his name. You're now gonna be Peter. Whoa. I mean, like, this is a, a bizarre, quick exchange. And you might be thinking, yeah, right. Like, this is not how things work. These two random guys would not just drop everything they're doing to follow Jesus, who they don't know, and all of a sudden, it just wouldn't work like that. Well, to understand what's happening here, we have to take a step back and, and look into the Jewish culture, because there's an explanation for why they followed him like they did and what's going on here. See, in that culture, uh, it was primarily boys could, could really get a, an education and could study Torah. They could learn all about what it means to, to, you know, to be a leader, to become a rabbi themselves if they wanted. And so about the age of five, they would start their official training, and they would get trained up until about the, the point they are 12 or 13. Okay? So all those years, they're getting trained, and then they would find out who has the real aptitude for this, who really uh, is, is above everyone else, who is really showing a knowledge of this, they're really good at understanding all this. Then those ones would go on to be rabbis in training. Okay? Now, a rabbi had to be around 30 years old. That's when you could become a rabbi. And so what these 12 and 13-year-old boys would do is when they realized, hey, we wanna keep going, they would have to find a rabbi and they would spend the next 17 years of their life following the rabbi around, absorbing their teachings, absorbing the way that they live, the way that they practice all of this. And then at age 30, they could become a rabbi as well. And so what is likely happening here, uh, because Jesus is 30, he's at the age you can be a rabbi, and he is uh, accumulating his own disciples, his own followers. So it is likely that the majority of Jesus' disciples were about 12 or 13-year-olds. Now, probably not what you're imagining in your head if you've ever imagined these stories. But again, if we look at Jewish culture, this is most likely what was going on here, which is fascinating. Because here's what this means. They're expecting to follow Jesus for the next 17 years of their life until they can become rabbis too. But that's not gonna happen because Jesus' ministry is only going to be three years. And then he's gonna go to a cross. Uh, they're gonna watch him murdered. Uh, they're gonna watch him die. And then they're gonna watch him come back to life. And they're not all gonna become rabbis. They're gonna go a very different direction based on what they see. But what this means is that when they saw the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, they were still teenagers. The reason you and I 
are here today. The reason you are watching or listening wherever you are at is because a group of teenagers saw something miraculous, wrote it down, and told a whole bunch of other people, and we are continuing the story today. If you have ever wondered why we are so passionate about family ministries here, it is because of things like this. Teenagers literally change the world for Jesus. And we believe it can still happen today. And if you haven't signed your kids up for summer camp, you are missing it. All right? Total side note, but you can already sign your kids up. This is why we think it matters so much. We can train them up. We can equip them. They can change the world for Jesus just like they did for all of us. And we are the recipients today of what a bunch of teenagers did. Now, I think that's interesting to, to ponder. But I want you to notice, as these two teenagers follow him, I want you to notice what Jesus says in verse 39. Come, he replied, and you will see. I would submit to you, this is not something that you say unless you feel you can back it up. You don't just go around going, come and see, right? Unless you are real confident that if people were to take you up on it, uh, you, you feel like you could deliver on what, what they're gonna find out. Let me illustrate this. How many of you would invite someone today, right in this moment, come and get a private tour of every room in my house just as it is with no chance for me to clean it up? Many of you are like, well, if you gave me notice and I could make my house look presentable and I could like, you know, just arrange certain things, then I'd gladly give you a tour. But, but we're not gonna invite someone to come and see just as it is. We're like, whoa, I'd have to clean up first. I'm not sure what you'd find out about me if you saw the way we really live, right? When, when it's not guest ready and it's just the way we live in it. You, you would learn other things. Or how many of you would say, hey, come and see my finances. I'll show you where I spend all my money just for fun. I'd like to see what you say about it. No, you're like, I'm not telling you that. You don't get to know where I spend my money because you would learn so much about someone if they invited you to come and see. I mean, truly, how many of us, when it comes to our life, really want others to come and see what's going on? We, we have a sense of guardedness there of I, I'm not sure what you would find out. I read an article this week that I thought was hilarious. It was talking about what you can learn about someone by where they place their bed in their bedroom. Never had this thought before, but now you'll never get it out of your head. You can learn a lot about someone, in particular, how they position their bed with the walls in their room. Now, let me illustrate this for you, and, and you might notice, like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. For example, if a bed is against two walls, it's probably a single person. Ever notice this? Why? Because you only need to get into the bed from one side. Most likely, if you're having a bed all by yourself, you might have that bed in a corner. And I think back to my single days, and I go, yeah, I had a bed in the corner. Never thought about it, but that makes a lot of sense. Well, if a bed is being shared by two people, you move it off one of the walls, and it goes against one wall right? Because that's how you have two people that can get into a bed. That makes more sense. So a couple is not likely to have a bed in a corner. They're going to move it up against one wall. But then the article began to go on and explore other possibilities, of which there are many, but I'll share two of my favorites. Uh, what about if you, if you decided to break the mold and you were going to put your bed in the middle of the room against no wall? That would look like this. And these are people who don't know fear, can you imagine stuff happening behind your head while you're sleeping? 
I mean, clearly they don't have little kids around who wake them up in the middle of the night. I don't need tapping on the back of my head that I can't see in the middle of the night. Like, that's terrifying. I already have the little faces in front of me where I can see. I don't need it behind me, right? But if you have nothing behind you, these are people who don't know fear. What about if you said, okay, I'm gonna put it up against the wall, but not where the head is, where the feet are. We're just gonna do it a little bit differently. That would look like this. And these are people who should be feared because that's just psychotic. Like what's going on there? And if that's you, I have a lot of questions for you and I'm sure I'm gonna get some emails of of your stories this week. Uh, But they have lots of combinations, all this. And I just thought it was fascinating. You could just walk into someone's bedroom, see how many walls the bed is touching and you could know things about them. That's the way come and see works. Come and see my life. You will find out things. This is a risky thing to say. And here's what I want you to know. This is Jesus's invitation to each of us. Come and see. Now, I don't know what view of God you brought in with you today. And some of you, uh, maybe you have a very negative view of God. Maybe your God is very scary. Maybe your God is angry at you. Uh, you know, I don't know what view of God you have. Maybe you're still working on your view of God. And, and again, wherever you're out in this journey, we're so glad that you're here. You're absolutely welcome here. But here's what I want you to know, that if you are wondering what, what God is really like, and maybe God's like, hey, you can't get near me. You can't get close to me. I wanna show you Jesus, who says, come and see. Come and see. You wanna know more? Come and see. Uh, you, you often go, well, you can't ask God questions. You, know, you just gotta trust him. Jesus is like, come and see. Come on, I, I wanna show you some stuff. Jesus has no skeletons in his closet. There's no like, weird theologies Jesus is hiding going, I hope you don't ask me about that one. Like, there's nothing. He's like, come and see. And in my experience, I, I, I grew up in a family that showed me Jesus. I have met Jesus in profound ways uh, over the years. Each time I get to know Jesus more, I am more impressed, more in awe, more just amazed at what I discovered. I think this is the invitation for every single one of us. Come and see. And Jesus knows he can back it up. Come and see, come and see, come and see. That's what he says to each of us. Now go back to chapter one. Let's look at the next day. Uh, It begins in verse 43. And this plays right off of the day we just uh, read. And you're gonna notice a number of parallels And what happens on this day? It says, the next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, a new guy, he said, follow me. Now, Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, you'd expect Nathanael's gonna go, yes, this is amazing. Check out Nathanael's response. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? He's like, yeah, right. You're not gonna get a Messiah from Nazareth. I mean, I don't know what town you would put in, but we all probably have a town in the back of our minds like nothing good comes from there. That's, that's Nazareth for Nathanael. Like no Messiah is coming from Nazareth. And he just kind of puts that in there. But notice Philip's response. Come and see. Hmm, who, who do you learn that from? When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael says, how do you know me? Such an interesting response. How do you know me? Jesus answered, oh, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. 
And Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. Nathaniel, buckle up, you ain't seen nothing yet. He then added, that was my version. He then added, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Oh, Nathaniel, I got some cool stuff in store for you. But again, you're noticing the exact same thing. Philip meets Jesus and immediately goes, I gotta go get Nathaniel. I gotta go get my friend and brings Nathaniel to Jesus. And Nathaniel goes, from being this like skeptical, there's no way this guy is who he says he is in one moment to a moment later worshiping him as God. How does that happen? How do you get that? I mean, this escalates so quickly, but I want you to notice that the question that he says, because I think this gives us the insight. What happened in Nathaniel? What triggered him to go from there's no way to this person is God? You find it in verse 48. He says, how do you know me? And then it was like, I've never had this experience. How do you know me? I think this is what happens every single time someone truly meets Jesus. This is your reaction. Whoa, how do you know me? I've never been known like that. How do you know me? And, and, and Nathaniel kind of has this moment. Now again, we might be reading it going, okay, well, he just saw him from far away, like, Big deal, that's how he knows them. What do, you, what do you mean, how does he know me? There's a lot happening here, and some of this is speculation, but uh, let me give you my interpretation of what I think's happening based on a few other details that, that we know about Jewish culture, and this would help it make a little bit more sense. Now, in Jewish culture, it was very common to go and pray under a fig tree. Now, the fig tree to them had this whole symbolic meaning. Again, culturally for us, we don't really have an equivalent. It's not like, hey, this afternoon when you're praying, go find a pine tree, pray under the pine tree. Like, we don't have anything like that. And so we just kind of get, it's like, that's weird. But for them, it was very symbolic. You would go and have a formal you know, study time. You would pray under a fig tree. That's the way a good Israelite would do it. Now, you would also pray under that time, and, and there were certain prayers that were really important prayers. And, and so again, you go, well, you know, what are they praying for? Like, hey, hope a fig drops so I can eat lunch. Like, no, it's like more significant stuff that they're praying for. And there's a, a Jewish expression that the religious leaders had uh, during this time that instructed the way that people were to pray. The expression goes like this. He who, when he prays, does not pray for the coming of the Messiah, has not prayed at all. Okay, this helps you understand the mentality of how much they were waiting for the Messiah. They're waiting for this deliverer, it's gonna kick Rome out, it's gonna conquer Rome, it's gonna make everything right. This is what they're praying for. And so if you said, hey, I had a great prayer time this morning, and they would say, did you pray for the Messiah? Well, no, I didn't. Well, you didn't pray at all. Like, it doesn't count unless you pray for the Messiah. So to them, this was a big deal. Now here's where, this is speculation, I'm gonna put my own interpretation into here. You can make it make sense however it makes sense to you. Here's what I think is happening based on the details of the story. I think Philip is about 12, or excuse me, Nathaniel, is about 12 or 13. Uh, he's at that age where he's a good Jewish boy. He wants to go on in his studies. He goes to pray under a fig tree like a good Jewish boy does, and he prays for the thing he's supposed to pray for. He begins praying in specific detail for the Messiah. And then he meets someone who claims to be the Messiah that knows exactly what he just prayed for. And I think Nathaniel's going, how do you know what I just said? And I bet there's more details here that Jesus said, hey, remember when you just asked for this or you just prayed for this, or whatever, that's me. 
And so it's not only, hey, I think this guy's the Messiah, but Nathaniel's realizing, you know me, like you're connected to me in a way that nobody else could know that unless you were the Messiah. And, and so Nathaniel has this moment of, how do you know me? And I think this is why Jesus refers to him as a true Israelite, because he's doing all the right things. He's praying for the Messiah under the fig tree, and he's like, hey, I've arrived. I'm here, and I know you. And you can just imagine Nathaniel's going, whoa, because he is known for the first time in a way he's never been known before. I think there's something here that all of us wrestle with today. Every single one of us, no matter what your age is, no matter what your journey with God has been, there is some key fundamental part of our humanity that this is tapping into that I want us to explore now. Now, I, I think there's different ways that this plays out, but there's two things each of us want. We want to be known and we want to be loved, but it doesn't always happen like that. And, and you can have any combination of those and, and, and oftentimes it changes, but depending on what you get, it, it, it will often will determine your experience. So let me show you how I think most of us play this out, okay? And you can write these down if you're interested in this. If you are loved, but you're not known, that is the illusion of acceptance. Let me explain. Love but not known would be, you know of me, you know a version of me, right? But you don't really know me. You don't know the real me. And so you love me, but you love a version of me. And so it feels like an acceptance, but it's actually the illusion of acceptance because I know that the version of me you love isn't the real version of me. Now, here's how this plays out. Social media. We can project a version of ourselves out there to people. This is who I am. And maybe we, we do it in church. You know, this is the version of me I want you all to see. And if people love that version of you, it feels good in the short term, but you know down deep that's not really you and they don't really know you. And so it's the illusion of acceptance. It's a hollow uh, feeling of victory. Like, oh yes, I'm, I'm, I'm loved. But, but you wonder, what if they, what if they really knew me? What if they knew the real me? What if they got to see more than what they've seen? Would they still love? And so you have these questions, you have these doubts, and, and you can begin to wonder how this would play out. This is where most of us live, in my opinion. We, we are loved, but we're not really known. And we keep things very shallow because what we're afraid of is what if someone did know you and they chose not to love you? What if someone really got to see the real you? you? You let down your guard, you showed them the real you, and when they saw the real version of you, they said, I don't want it. Well, that would be this. That would be known, but not loved, which I think is our deepest fear. Now, again, I'm not talking about someone knows of you. I'm saying someone knows you. They really know you. And this is why uh, some of us carry some significant scars with us. Uh, and we bring them in today. And, and, and many of you are sorting through things. Now imagine a couple scenarios here to explain this. Imagine someone says, hey, uh, you know, you have an acquaintance and maybe it's a, 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 someone you work with or someone you, you see casually and, and you hear, oh yeah, they hate you. They don't wanna have anything to do with you anymore. Now you might be like, okay, that's weird. I don't know why they hate me, uh, but I don't know them that well. And they don't know me. And you're probably not gonna lose sleep by that. You're not gonna be really rattled by that. You're like, well, they don't really know me. So it's, it's fine. It's not gonna hurt you. But now imagine if you go, hey, your, your parent or your child or your best friend or your spouse or your boyfriend or your girlfriend uh, who knows you says they don't want anything to do with you anymore. That is going to hurt on a whole different level. Why? Because they know you. 
They, they got to see the real you and, and they chose not to love you. Which is why some of you have been spending years working through a, a pain of a parent who knew you but said you were not worth loving. And you carry that pain with you. Some of you have experienced marital infidelity and that feels like being known but not loved and it is an incredible fear. I've walked that road with many people and I've watched the way that deeply impacts you. You see, we're so afraid of this and maybe you've experienced some of this and if you have or you've seen it in others, what it often produces is a fear and so we go back to the top and we go, I'd rather just be loved and you don't have to know the real me because I can't handle that. I can't handle the feeling of you knowing me and you choosing that I'm not worth loving. The pain of that is immense. But there's a third option. Could it be possible that we could have both, that we could be known and that we could be loved? And if we experience that, I think what you get is thriving. When someone knows you and someone says, I know you and I choose to love what I know about you. I know the real you. That is the environment in which we as a human begin to thrive. And yet, you might look in your life right now and go, I have none of this. No one truly knows me and loves me. I hope you can think of names of people. You go, yeah, they know me and they love me. And, and that, again, these are all relationships that will allow you to thrive. But maybe you're going, I, I don't think I have that. And if you don't have that, you're gonna resort back to this. And you'll say, I'll keep you at bay and, and I'll keep this version of you and, and, and you can just you know, love me for who you think I am and that will be good enough. But here's what you gotta realize. Jesus wants to know you and love you. And, and Jesus knows you. And he says, hey, I, I, I choose that. And for some of us, we just can't even wrap our minds around this. And maybe if you've never experienced this from another human, you don't think that God could do it for you. You don't think that. That doesn't make any sense. No one would know me and love me. Gwen Sellers says it like this. She says, in front of Jesus, he did not just tell people who he was. He didn't even just tell them who he knew they were. He invited them to relate in a real way. He invited them to know him and to be known by him. It is in our relationship with God that we are most known. And it is in our knowing him that we have the fullness of life. See, this is what Nathaniel began to experience. Wow, how do you know me like that? Here's what I wanna to say to each and every one of you today. Jesus fully knows you, fully. Like, like you, you might think, like, oh, I've, I've kept that. Nobody knows, fully knows you. Jesus knows the things that you want, the things that, those desires in your heart that you've never even vocalized to another human. He knows those. Jesus knows what you do on your worst day in your very lowest moment, and he loves you. Let that sink in. He knows you fully, and he does not recoil from you. He does not go, I am so disgusted by you. He does not look at you and go, you should do better. He looks at you and he says, you are loved. And some of you, you've never leaned into this. You've never fully embraced this. And this will change your life forever when you begin to accept this reality. The Apostle Paul describes it like this in 1 Corinthians 13. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Paul connects two ideas that most of us don't connect. 
as you are fully known by God, as you accept this, as you lean into this, as you allow this to be your identity, you shall know fully who God is. Now, what we wanna do is go, no, I don't want that part. That makes me uncomfortable. I wanna know God fully and I'll keep him at a distance. And to that, you know, when we go, hey, I wanna know you, Jesus. I wanna, I wanna get to know you. Jesus is going, you gotta come closer. You're gonna have to come closer than that. No, 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 I wanna fully know you. He's going, put your arms down and I'll show you. But I'm, Jesus, I'm not sure. I don't know what you'll see if you, if you know me. And he's like, I already know you. Lower your hands and experience that. And when you do this, as Paul says, as you accept I am fully known, you shall know fully what God is like. And we want that so bad, but so many of us are terrified of this. What would he say? And the reality is he knows everything about you and he loves you. And all of this is what literally can transform us. Literally, this is what will change your life. When you go, you know what? I've got some wounds from the past and I've got some relationships that have been hard, but I am known and fully loved by the creator of the universe. And when you start with that, all of your relationships begin to change. You begin to work on a journey of healing uh, of things that have happened to you and you begin to thrive in ways that are not possible unless you are known and loved. And when you experience this and you go, wow, this, this is a game changer. This will change some people. It leads us to this question that we'll, we'll close with this question. Who are you bringing to Jesus? See, in this story, we looked at two different days and both of them mirror someone who meets Jesus and then immediately goes and gets somebody. I met Jesus, that's a, that's a game changer. I gotta get my brother. That's a game changer. I gotta get my friend Nathaniel. Immediately they come and they bring someone to Jesus. And I would suggest there's something there that you and I can replicate today. Now, I want you to notice how it happens. Verse 46 makes this very clear. Nazareth, Nathaniel says, can anything good come from there? Philip says, come and see. No. Well, yeah, Jeremy, if I go and ask somebody, they're not, I mean, they're not gonna wanna do this. They're not gonna want Jesus. They're gonna have this, you know, this excuse or that excuse or, or they're gonna have this belief or that belief. Yeah, so did Nathaniel. He, he, didn't, he didn't buy it initially. He wasn't on board initially. He had a reason why it didn't make sense to him. What did Philip say? No, let me explain to you the 18 reasons why Nazareth makes sense. No, hey, let me biblically, theologically unpack Nazareth for you so that you can, no, he said, come and see. I don't know, it's kind of weird it's Nazareth, but why don't you meet him for yourself? What if we adopted the same technique today? Hey, I want you to experience what I've experienced. I want you to meet Jesus. Yeah, but whatever excuse. And you go, yeah, I don't know. Why don't you come and see? Like, come and meet him. And what would happen if your friends, if your family, if your coworkers, if your neighbors came and were known by Jesus the way Nathaniel was? What if they got to experience what Nathaniel experienced when they met Jesus for themselves? All these reasons go away when you are known by your creator. And some of us, all we have to do is the same thing. Come and see. It's so simple. Hey, I want you to come see what I've seen. I want you to experience what I've seen. I want you to meet who I have met. That, that really changes everything. And some of you, you want to do this. And maybe you've tried to do this and it hasn't gone well. And, and I've, I've met a lot of Christians with incredible intent, incredible hearts. And, and they put so much weight on themselves. Like, oh, I'm not doing good enough. And I don't know enough theology. And I'm not smart enough. And I can't debate them enough. And it's like, no, no, no. It's not about 
any of that. And so I wanna give you a little phrase to write down, and this is like a gift I give you today. Someone said this to me many years ago, and it changed me. And this is something that will lift a load off of your shoulders if you're going, hey, I wanna do this, but I'm not sure how to do this. You ready for this? Write this down. You are not the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Praise Jesus, it's true, Amen? amen? You are not the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? It is not your job to debate someone into the kingdom of God. It is not your job to woo them into the kingdom of God. It is not your job to guarantee the results of them getting to the kingdom of God. It is your job to introduce them to Jesus. That's it. Come and see. And then the Holy Spirit gets to do what the Holy Spirit can do. It was the Holy Spirit at work in Nathaniel that was moving and showing him, hey, you know the thing you just prayed for? He's standing in front of you. Whoa, that's amazing. The Holy Spirit will continue to do that today. And we put this pressure on us, like I gotta be so compelling. And, and I do this sometimes with sermons. If I just preach the best sermon in the world, everyone will believe Jesus. I am not the Holy Spirit. I can't do that. But what I can do is set up a date for you and Jesus. Hey, I want you to meet Jesus. I want you to experience him, and I'm hoping that the Holy Spirit is gonna do for you what the Holy Spirit has done for me, and if that happens, it will forever change your life. Now, I'm gonna close with this. We could talk about this. This could be theoretical, uh, but I like to figure out how do we actually do the things that we're learning, the things that we're talking about. So we're gonna give you all, uh, wherever you are, we're gonna give you a chance right now to actually practice what it feels like to invite someone to come and see what you have experienced. I don't know if you know this, but in about a week's time, we have a whole bunch of Christmas services. Uh, Here's the times, in case you're a little confused on these. A whole bunch. These are Happy Valley times, Sandy times, Vancouver times, uh, uh, and Happy Valley is Monday and Tuesday options. And here's the deal. We are gonna create an environment and experience that is gonna try to, to communicate who Jesus is as clear as we know how and as as easy of a way as we know how. We want this to be an environment where you could bring someone to come and see who Jesus is, maybe for the very first time. And so here's what we're gonna invite you to do. Right now, what I would like you to do, wherever you are, is get your phone out, and I want you to text someone an invite to join you for a service. And maybe you can, uh, that's gonna be my service I know right now. Maybe you don't know, but I want you to go ahead and get your phone out and text them. Most of you are not even moving and I can see you, okay? (laughs) Please get your phone out, I can see you. If you have no one that's coming to mind, you can scroll through your contacts and that way your phone will light up, right, okay? So here's what I'm gonna ask you. We're gonna give you literally a minute to sit down right now and you get to practice what Andrew did, what Philip did. You get to say, I have met Jesus, I have seen something, I want you to come and see with me. We're creating a whole environment for you to invite them to. So either text someone, if God is laying someone in your heart right now, it's a great time. On Thursday night, I got to see a ton of responses to people doing this, people going, yeah, thanks for the invite, I'll totally come. That could be you, just invite someone that God's laying on your heart, or at a minimum, look through your contacts and start getting ideas. Here's a one minute, go.
Okay, not so scary, right? You can, you can invite people. Here's the reality. Uh, that invite could literally change someone's life forever. If someone were to be known by Jesus, that could change their life. They could experience thriving for the very first time. We just gave you a minute. You have days to do this. You have days to go. God, who should I invite to come and see what I have seen and who could experience what I have experienced being fully known and fully loved by God? Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for this invitation. Thank you that you invite people like us to follow you. Thank you that a a bunch of teenagers said yes and decided to follow you and told what they had seen and we get to be uh, the recipients of that legacy even today. And for all of us who may be afraid to invite someone, afraid of what might happen, may we see the example with people like Andrew and Philip who just are willing to say, come and see what I have seen. And as we look at Nathaniel's response to being known, may we see that as an invitation for all of us to be fully known, fully loved by you. And may we experience the thriving conditions that happen when when we acknowledge that. And we get to know you more fully as we allow you to know us and, and to tell us who we are as you have created us. And so God, we know that this is a game-changing idea, that this literally can change people's futures, uh, can change their realities, can bring healing to incredible amounts of pain. And so we just invite you to use us, use people like us, uh, lay people's names on our hearts, and invite opportunities in the next few days to invite others to come and see the life-changing person of Jesus that we have experienced. It is in his name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. amen.